This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Don't sit down. Who wants Ed to stage dive? No, no, no. <laughs> Next year, maybe. Yeah. This is nice. Mosh pit at the front. Thank Big you for coming. audience. Thank you for coming. Uh, so we've had a wander around the festival site since we arrived here. Ed, you're quite worried about the pink sheep. The pink sheep? I mean, we're going to be talking about the environment. And I'm wondering whether it's an early sign of environmental destruction, the pink sheep. <laughs> So go on, shall I give my reason to be cheerful? Yes, you did. So I was on the Trump demonstration on Friday. Uh, I mean, should I say the anti-Trump demonstration, in case you thought I'd gone on the other one. Uh, And uh, it was absolutely brilliant. It it was people from right across the political spectrum, right across different occupations who were there, and uh, brilliant sign. My favourite sign was, feed him to the corgis. Uh, which was, I thought, a brilliant homemade yeah. sign. I saw one which said, even the introverts are upset and we've come out especially. <laughs> and I think I'm going to read, uh, uh, because the audience is slightly cut off. So Piers Morgan, who I'm sure you're all really keen on, uh, he did this interview with Donald Trump and they've released some extracts from it. I just want to read you one extract uh, because it sort of shows what a genius, stable genius, the President of the United States is. He's, he said this, 
They make phenomenal things, you know, and you have different names. You can say England, you can say UK, you can say United Kingdom. So many different, you know, you have, you have so many different names. Great Britain, I always say, which one do you prefer? Great Britain, you understand what I'm saying. So basically, I don't think he kind of... I don't think he quite gets the whole Great Britain, United Kingdom, England thing, does he? Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is I went to see the Muppets last night. Yeah, and they were absolutely wonderful. Um, and I, t- I took the boat there. Uh, it was at the old Millennium Dome in London, so I thought I'm going to treat myself and go on the, um, the river taxi. And there, w- there was a woman on the boat who'd been to the Free Tommy protest. Right. And she was wearing a, a Free Tommy T-shirt. This is not cheerful, is it? And a, a rosette which said hashtag Trump. And I thought, where is she getting a rosette from? Like, did she make that especially? But that isn't your cheerful thing, is it? No, the, the Muppets, Muppets are my cheerful, cheerful thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. Jeff went to LA to see the Muppets. He's such a big Muppets fan. I went last year to LA. They announced live shows, and, and I'd never heard of them doing live shows at it before. And I said to my wife, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. <laughs> the week I got back, they announced shows in London. <laughs> It's a sore point in our marriage. Who is your favourite Muppet character? I, I, it's, it's boring, but I, I think it's Kermit. But right. um, yeah, do you have a favourite? I thought you were going to say Beaker, but you, did, you, you didn't. Uh, um, now look, should we say? Does what? anybody remember that during 2015? Any time Ed tweeted, somebody, and you've got to, you must have respected their commitment every time you tweeted. Say they, fuck off, Beaker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that's why you should never look at your ats on Twitter, basically. That is, my, that is my strong advice, don't you think? Yeah. Um, all right, so we should get on with it. Before we do we so, should. I'll mention that later we are joined by a brilliant comedian. You may well have seen her here over the weekend at the festival. Uh, I think she performed yesterday. Jen Brister. Uh, she has a show at the Edinburgh Festival called Meaningless, and Jen is going to be coming on to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. But first of all, uh, I was here ten years ago... Um, to talk about the environment, and we're going to talk about something which is very much related to the environment. And we have an absolutely brilliant guest. His name is Simon Lewis. He's an award-winning scientist and professor of global change science at University College London. That's good. Good whoop. And, and he's the author of the new book, co-author, I should say, of a new book called The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene. Now, the Anthropocene is something you're going to be hearing a lot about, and we're going to get him to explain it uh, to us, but it's a chance to talk about the environment, the threat to the environment, and what we do about it. So, everybody, please give an enormous latitude hand to Simon Lewis. Now, Simon, you've got this new book, and uh, you're going to brandish it, and, and I strongly recommend you buy this book. It's really excellent, an excellent read, and I have read it, and Jeff has read it too, or Jeff's read bits of it. Uh, um, uh, sorry. I, sk- uh, I skimmed it. You skimmed it. Let me just ask a very basic question, Simon, because I know this has been raging in scientific circles, but maybe not elsewhere. What is the Anthropocene? So the Anthropocene is the idea that humans are changing the environment, changing the planet to such an extent that they rival the important events in Earth's history. So one example is that... Uh, Nitrogen fertilizer production and agricultural crops remove enough nitrogen from the atmosphere as much as all natural processes put together. So that is a change 
that's as significant as when the modern nitrogen cycle started around 2.5 billion years ago. So a huge transformation. In terms of biodiversity, we're losing species at about between 100 and 1,000 times the rates that we see before humans walk this earth. And then at, at, a, at a shorter time scale still, we are seeing over the last 2.6 million years, earth has flipped between ice ages and interglacials like we've seen over the last 10,000 years. And we've put enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere now that that planetary metronome is going to skip a beat. So we won't have another ice age for at least 100,000 years. Which you might think is good news, but... But we are pushing Earth into a new super interglacial. So we're in a heat wave now across the northern hemisphere. And this is a portent of things to come. So the temperatures now are hot. But by mid-century, these will be quite normal temperatures for here at this time of year. So there are significant global changes happening to the planet on a fast scale. And this is important for us all because farming and human civilizations all emerged in a time of planetary stability over the last 10,000 years. And that time is over and we are now in a new time, which we call the Anthropocene. So a combination of the words in Greek for humans and recent time, because we live now on a human-dominated planet. And is it, mod- is it specific to modern humans? You know, we think of the, the past hundred years or post-industrial revolution. Is that the period that def- uh, has caused the Anthropocene, or is it, does it go back longer than that? Uh, so, so scientists have a kind of have a way of thinking about this. The first stage of this is to say, is Earth moving towards a new state? And and most people, most scientists will agree with that. Simon, statement. just say we're in the Holocene. We've we, we previously been thought to be in the Holocene. Holocene, exactly. Right. So, so starting ele- specifically eleven thousand six hundred and fifty years ago, we started the Holocene, and now we're talking about moving into a new geological epoch called the Anthropocene. And the definitions of these things are, uh, for, for scientists, are around is geology. So in the past, time is separated by looking at rocks. So the early part of rocks is about sediments. So uh, record natural data storage devices of Earth. So sediments building up records and what we can see in those sediments. So we're looking for the first period when humans can really, when we can see the impact of humans. And the first one of those we see on a global scale is after Columbus went to the Americas for the first time and took pigs and other farm animals, but also a lot of diseases as well. And that globalization of species is a, is a signature of the Anthropocene. And what happened when those diseases arrived is that though indigenous people had no uh, immunity to them and around 50 million people died as a result of those diseases. And there were almost all farmers in Central and South America, and their fields grew back to forest and sucked enough carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere that we can see it in the records from ice cores in Antarctica. So we can see a dip in the CO2 in the atmosphere from the growing trees, 
And we can see from records around the world that Earth got cooler at that time for around 100 years. So it's a small, early change of what we can see in the sediments. And from that point onwards, we're in this new period moving to a new state of the Anthropocene. So, so to simplify this, this the Anthropocene idea is that humans are so important in terms of their impact on the natural environment that it's got to, the, 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 the era we're in has got to be branded a sort of human-influenced era, essentially. Exactly. That what we do is significant... And you, and you date it from the scale. sort of 1650 sort of time. Yeah. Now, beyond the sort of, beyond that, where does it then take you to, to the challenges we face? I mean, humans are having this impact. I think you say in your book, three trillion trees have been lost since human civilization, but one and a half trillion in the last couple of hundred years, correct? Correct, correct. So, so where does that, and we've got climate change and all of those challenges, biodiversity, where does that take you then in terms of the urgency? So, so it's, you know, it's really urgent because the global economy, this all drives back to the global economy, its function and its size. So... We see, like, we've lost three trillion trees. We've also produced enough concrete to uncover the entire earth in a layer two millimeters thick. We've produced enough plastic to entirely cling film the whole earth. And those fibers from that plastic are now in almost all of our drinking water and much of our seafood if we eat it. So the scale of the global economy and how it functions is really important. And it's going to double in size, growing at 3% a year in the next 23 years, and double again. So it's really urgent that we tackle these environmental problems head on. And in your book, you lay out three different futures for dealing with this challenge of the Anthropocene. Do you want to just briefly say what they are, and then, and then we'll talk about some of the solutions? It will get more cheerful, I promise you, it'll get more cheerful. It's not all total doom and gloom. Um, so here we have, uh, yeah, you could sketch out one of three possible futures. We might just model through, uh, taking uh, each environmental problem as it comes and trying to put a sticking plaster over it, and then coming up with another one and seeing another sticking pla- uh, using another sticking plaster. Uh, we might not tackle these environmental problems. We might have a real social collapse where environmental problems and other social problems override the political systems we have in place to deal with with problems. Or we might see much more fundamental structural change where we really tackle these problems head on and move towards a new mode of living different from the ones we, one we have. And that's what you're advocating, basically. Number three. I, I think Neither that, muddling on nor collapse. I, I, I see it hard... Well, I, I don't want to see collapse. And I don't want to see billions of people suffering through some kind of collapse or just muddling through and leaving hundreds of millions in poverty. So I'd rather see systemic change that allows people to flourish and the natural environment and the other species we share this earth with. So can we talk about the two solutions that you propose in the book? I mean, that slightly oversimplifies it, but you can kind of boil it down to two big ideas. Um, The first is half earth. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, so the idea of half-Earth is from uh, uh, an American biologist, um, uh, E.O. Wilson, uh, who puts it that, the idea that we should give half of Earth's surface to all the other species we share this planet with. So we more or less keep one half, and all the other species get, get the other half. And that will allow species to 
adapt to the rapidly changing climate and for other species to flourish while we do as well. And how... What, what, Tell a little bit more about the implications of half-Earth. I mean, how realistic is that compared to where we are now? What would it mean? What, what, would, we do? what, would, what would happen in the other half of the Earth? Uh, so we currently have uh, around 15% of the land surface that is in some kind of, has some kind of legal protection uh, for the species that live there. Uh, so we'd be going a big jump from there, and that would require some, kind of, some changes. But change is already afoot. Uh, there was new data out last week. So we normally think that, um, that around 50% of the world's population is urban. But actually, it's probably more like around 80 to 85% of the world's population is urban. So that we can take pressure off the land. And if we increase the uh, productivity and the, the losses from farming, reduce the losses from farming, then we can increase the outputs from agricultural land allowing rewilding to occur outside of those farmland areas. And, and I think it's important that in terms of the Anthropocene, it's a, because it's such a fundamentally new, kind of deep idea that what we do really matters, it changes our perspective on nature. We have an idea of nature that comes from the Industrial Revolution of pristine national parks compared to uh, dirty industry. And actually, the Anthropocene says that we are actually part of nature and that we are part of helping it flourish and therefore we can be involved in it and we can go ahead with rewilding projects where we let natural processes run but we guide those natural processes to bring species back and allow ecosystem processes and functions to unfold. So I think it's, a, it's an idea that brings about a new kind of uh, idea about what nature is and how we interact with it. And, and you're advocating this for biodiversity reasons, but also for climate change reasons, correct? Just say a little bit about the climate change reasons, because I think it's kind of important context for this. Sure. Um, so in terms of climate change, we can plant trees to... So around half the dry weight of a tree is carbon. So you can plant trees, and it will remove carbon from the atmosphere... And, uh, uh, and reduce the rate and magnitude of climate change. Trees also have a much more uh, local e effect in terms of cooling regionally, which is also good in these hot times. And, and we need to preserve big areas of nature. Uh, so last year, me and my team, we discovered for the first time that in the center of the Congo Basin is the world's largest tropical peatland. Uh, so that peatland that no one knew existed, it was a wetland, but no one had looked underground. And this peat has been accumulating there for 10,000 years and stores around 30 billion tonnes of carbon. So that carbon can stay locked Which is in the equivalent of how much? Uh, about three years' worth of global emissions from all sources. I think it's worth pausing on this, So because uh, we met Simon on the train and he happened to mention this. He discovered the largest tropical peatland in the world last year. Um, nobody knew it existed. Uh, they knew there was a marshland there, but they didn't know it was a peatland. Now, the, the, the difference between the two is one is a much better way of absorbing carbon than the other. But correct. Cor cor correct, correct. So in a, in a peatland um, where it's wet all year round, then, then when the plants die and the leaves die then they don't get fully decomposed. So a, a small amount of that leaf material and wood material accumulates over time and is stored as carbon, keeping it out of the atmosphere. Uh, at, you know, the scale of this peatland is, 
it, you know, it's immense. It's about the size of England. <laughs> and uh, nobody knew it existed. And, and people knew it was a wetland, and very, very few people live there. And very few people go very far into the wetland where the peatland really starts. Uh, so, and no one really was digging down four, five, and, six And incidentally, meters. since Simon discovered this, a treaty has now been signed by the Democratic Republic of Congo and... The Republic of Congo. And the Republic of Congo to protect this peatland in perpetuity. Uh, so it was discussed... Yeah, big round of applause for that, I think. So basically, I mean, this is a bit simplistic, but we need more of that. <laughs> yes, yes, we, we, we need to preserve the places around the world that are ecosystems with very high carbon stocks. So peatlands in the UK and in the tropics and the rest of Europe and northern boreal zones and tropical rainforests of these super carbon dense across the equatorial regions. But yeah, these places with tree cover uh, and places with high storage in the soils like peatlands really need to be preserved and we should talk about the other solution that you propose and regular listeners to the podcast will have heard us talk about this this is UBI uh, so for people who don't know can you, can you tell us uh, a bit about UBI and how specifically that would help the universal basic income, yeah. Sure. So this is slightly off-piste for uh, many uh, scientists to write about. But universal basic income is where every citizen of a country would get an income to allow them to live, to provide for their basic needs of housing, food, and other uh, clothing and other basic needs. And how this fits into thinking about the environment is that... We think that it may change consumption habits. So what we do as people is that we all go to work and we have to be really productive at work because someone else will come along who's more productive and take our job. So we have to be more productive year on year. And the payback for that production is that we get to consume ever more and more. And it makes little sense to change our consumption habits when we know that next year... And in 10 years' time, we'll still have to be working harder. Whereas universal basic income allows us to break that production and consumption cycle. We would all have more time to care for ourselves, more time to care for others, and more time to think about what we do beyond the next payday. We will be able to plan for the long term. And, 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 and... you know, the Anthropocene is not a great thing to think about. Uh, lots of really grim statistics. But one thing it really forces us, I think, to do is to think about the longer term. And that's one way about linking today's pressing economic issues for ourselves and thinking about the longer term. You talk in the book about consumption. There's a, a terrifying statistic about uh, consumption in the, by the richest billion people in the world which includes everybody in here yeah yeah so so that if there are about 7.5 billion people on earth the richest billion their consumption habits in terms of the amount of plastic they use the metals they use the fossil fuels they use is around five to ten times the amount of the average of the other six and a half billion so if those six and a half billion all move themselves up to the consumption habits of a rate of the top billion, then that's like a planet having 32 billion people on it at today's consumption rates. 
So that's not which, good, really. Which, which, even if we have a really positive view about, well, we'll, we'll, we'll manage with a few, a couple of billion extra, that's 32 billion people. That would be a, a huge imposition on everything else. And it's unclear whether that's manageable uh, as, a, as, as, a, as a globally connected network of cultures. So that says that actually the Anthropocene is also, it's an environmental issue, but it's also an issue around uh, inequality and around moving to much more equality globally, but breaking that production and consumption levels to bring them to something more sustainable. Okay. Let's go to the audience. I'm sure they've got questions about the environment, the Anthropocene, what we should all be doing, uh, how we can make this more positive for people to show that actually it is a, a better life. People. Who would like to ask a question? What's your name, sir? Uh, it's Chris. Hi, Chris. Uh, top three things, really. What can we do to make a difference ourselves? Good question. Good question. Uh, so I'll start from something personally. So there's some uh, really good evidence recently in the scientific literature that some of the biggest things that you can do individually is around changes to your diet. Uh, to less meat and dairy consumption, uh, more fruit and vegetables, um, uh, can have a, a big impact on carbon emissions. Because livestock... Because, li because livestock uh, are incredibly inefficient ways of producing calories and protein, and uh, they produce the methane... Uh, which is a greenhouse gas which exacerbates the climate change on top of the land area and inefficiency. And we did an episode, just to plug the podcast for a second, we did an episode on this, and it doesn't say you've got to go vegan tomorrow, you can if you like, no. but uh, it's about at least cutting down the amount of meat we eat. C carry on, though. Um, I think in terms of, for example, uh, plastic pollution, uh, so no single-use plastic and short-life plastic should be biodegradable is something that we should be really lobbying for rather than just thinking about uh, plastic straws. Um, and then, you know, we, many of these things we can't just do through individual lifestyle changes. We have to do it collectively. Uh, so I was involved in uh, campaigns in the 1990s to uh, stop Britain building a fleet of new coal-fired power stations. And actually, a huge... Uh, campaign across all sectors of society um, including scientists got that policy shifted and now we're seeing a retiring of coal-fired power stations and we won't have any by 2025 and we already have stretches of hours and sometimes days where renewables are powering almost all of the UK economy. And, and in case you think it all sounds hopeless and you can't do anything, we were discussing this as well on the way here the levels of emissions in Britain are now back to the levels they were at in 1890, despite our economy being miles bigger. So, you know, it does show... I mean, I'm not saying it should be business as usual, but it does show you can have an effect. Let's take some more questions. Who else wants... Oh, yes, lots of people. Lady in the front row, and then lady standing up in the blue. Uh, Nona from Crawley. Uh, you kind of touched on it. What uh, big solutions do we need at a government level or wider than that to tackle this issue going beyond plastic straws? Okay, beyond plastic straws. And let's take the lady in the blue and then we'll, we'll get uh, a response on that from Simon. 
Uh, this is a question sort of about uh, universal basic income. What's your name, sorry? Oh, sorry, it's Kat. I'm Hi. from the States. I'm Great. sorry. None at all. <laughs> I didn't vote Trump. No. <laughs> I didn't. Our quarrel is with the president, not with the American people. I appreciate that. We yeah. appreciate that. Um, but I, I would just like to preface by saying I support the idea of a universal basic income, but I'm just curious, talking about the environmental impacts, uh, you sort of reference that uh, universal basic income would sort of assist the environment, but I'm curious how you would uh, mitigate by bringing everyone up when it comes to sort of their economic state. That would then increase consumption. What do we then do it's sort of, I guess, the problem. If we get everyone to be at the same point as the billion of us here in the West, the level that they're consuming at, how would exactly that, how would we okay. help the environment? Okay, so Kat asks, you know, what's the perverse effects going to be of the UBI? And Nona from Crawley asks, uh, what are the big solutions? Yeah, I'll take the UBI one uh, first. So I, I think we have to distinguish between um, uh, impacts in places like the UK and the US and places like say Kenya or Rwanda where there are experiments going on. So we want to, people need to increase their consumption of certain things if they're really poor. You know, we need to increase consumption of education. We need to increase consumption of clean water in lots of places, uh, of food for about 800 million people. Um, so bringing those people up, I, I have no problem with, and, and there will be structural questions around how food is supplied uh, and its environmental impact that's slightly separate from the UBI question. But then for the bulk of people, a UBI allows them to think about the future. And, you know, I've done it. I go to work and I say, oh, I deserve to buy a uh, sandwich in a pl plastic wrapper with foodstuffs from all over the world uh, because I'm working and I deserve it. And I'm too busy to do X, Y, and Z, so I buy fast consumption, things that allow me to do stuff even faster because I've got so little time. And that would all lessen, and we would all be, I would unloosen that knot of production. So it's a working less thing. Partly you think yeah. it's a working less. It's a working less, and it's, and it's working at the pace that you would prefer to. So if you have very young kids, then you might work less. And then you probably work. I like the idea more. of a three-day weekend myself, actually. Yeah, um, that, you know, there's enough. We, in the UK, we have a redistribution problem, not a wealth problem. Um, so, so, I, so, so I think it's it's about how we think and about what we think we deserve from work. And if we think we deserve from work to have, and you know. A, a, a good life that respects other people and respects the environment, then we're more likely to do that in that, in that policy environment uh, rather than seeing it as a kind of dog-eat-dog. Dog. I, I, you know, I've got to work harder now and I'm going to consume now in case someone else does. Okay, and go to Nona's question about big solutions. You've said a little bit, yeah. but... Um, so in terms of uh, big solutions, um, the Committee on Climate Change, I think, is doing important work so it sets five-year um, carbon budgets. That's the independent so, committee that advises the government, for those who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a five-year budget going down uh, to 2050s to get down to 80% less emissions than we had in 1990 by 2050. So the first thing to do is we've been meeting those, but we're projected to 
not meet the next one because of policy decisions now by, by the current government. So we could get back on track to meet that and meet the future targets um, in terms of climate change mitigation. So we've done lots of easy things about closing coal-fired power stations, but you can't keep closing them because they're already all scheduled to close. So we have to move to things like transport and get that down to zero emissions. So that's moving to electric cars, much more public transport, and then some offsetting of that small amount of emissions that remain. Um, so taking each sector and working out how it gets to zero emissions is a kind of big issue. And then on top of that, we see from this summer's real heat wave and that these temperatures will become more normal as we go into the future. And many of us will spend summers in a kind of Mediterranean type climate that we will need to adapt. So much more focus in terms of policy on how we adapt to climate change, our national infrastructure, uh, water supplies, uh, what kind of crops we can grow um, as we go into the future is the other kind of side of the, the, the can, puzzle. Can I, can I just add to that? One way I think about this is what I call the triple zero option, which is we should be zero emissions by 2050. So I legislated for us to cut our emissions by 80% by 2050, but that is not enough when you look at the challenge. And actually, every country is now signed up to getting to zero emissions. Rich countries have got to get there by 2050. Secondly, as Simon says, we should have zero carbon vehicles, and we shouldn't wait till 2040 for zero carbon vehicles. We should do it much quicker than that. And then thirdly, zero carbon homes. We, 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 were, we did legislate the Labour government for zero carbon homes, and that has been got rid of. It is absolutely crazy for us to be building homes which are not zero carbon, given the, the massive challenges we face uh, in the household sector. Uh, one more round. I think we've got time for uh, one more round, maybe. Uh, yep, there's a lady here in the fourth row. Hello. Hi. Um, a few years ago... What's your name? Annabelle. Hi. About two or three years ago, there was a projection that we would be eating a lot of insects in a few years' time. Um, that they are... Not just on I'm a Celebrity, get me out. No. Um... Have you been offered that? I, I haven't, actually, no. <laughs> I was offered the after show. I thought that was a bit... But I wouldn't do the other one either, just for the record. I think you'd be good. No, 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 I think not. <laughs> um, you know, they're easy to keep control of. They're, you know, easy to store. They're very high in protein. Is there, as the future of food goes on, will that become a more viable option for Western countries who don't tend to incorporate that as part of their diet, apart from the exotic? That is a very unusual question. Good, but good question. Insect eating. Uh, okay, Annabelle said, should we be eating insects? Uh, let's just go back a few rows. Uh, hello. Hi. Hi, my name's Callum. I'm from Bishop Stortford. Um, so every you know, activity and goal to help make the world and humanity more sustainable should be rewarded, but due to the Earth's you know, nature as a celestial body, it, is, it will eventually end. And I spend t- quite a lot of time thinking about how, if humanity will you know, reach past that. Do you think it's ever a worthwhile endeavour in either a scientific or policy kind of arena to think about how to, you know, ensure human civilization gets past the possibly biggest challenges it could ever face. This is like Elon Musk sort of territory, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So Callum asks, should we go and colonize other planets, sort of? Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Esther. Hi. Um, I was just... Um, my question is, is uh, UBI uh, a realistic proposition for the political state that we live in at the moment? Like, it's obviously a gr- like growing in popularity, but um, I just wonder like, how would it be implemented, would it be voted? Um, yeah, that sort of thing. Should we eat insects? 
should we colonise other planets and is UBI realistic in the political context? I can say something about that, maybe. Uh, so should we insects have no problems with eating them although the ones I have eaten in the Congo Basin I haven't enjoyed um, what were they? oh they eat these um, uh, grubs right uh, a really big uh, disgusting right okay. to be fair uh, to my palate so I no, no problem with that I, I suspect that that actually um, all this work on fake meat uh, so growing meat in a lab uh, so we avoid all the animal welfare issues and some of the resource issues might be a way that goes forward that's more palatable to more people uh, than, than either eating insects or veganism, I suspect. So veggie burgers, not grasshoppers, basically. Uh, uh, Colonising other planets? I, I just do not see how we can uh, organise to, to create a fully functioning ecosystem that can feed and reproduce a large enough human population to have a full-scale colony when we can't manage a handful of, say, national parks really well. Um, and UBI? Do you want to say something about UBI? Or do you want me to... uh, I think you're probably a, a I mean, better think, person. The thing I would say about the UBI is, look, it is definitely not going to happen tomorrow, but I think... You got the, the thing I like most about it is it thinks big about what kind of society we want to be and asks ourselves, well, you know, do we want people to have more choice about how much they work, what they do, the power to say no to their boss, all of those things. And I think the very least we should be doing is trying it out. And increasingly, just to go to the realism point, other countries are trying it out. It's been tried out in Scotland, uh, a little bit in Finland. I'm not sure the experiment was great in Finland. I think uh, the Netherlands might be doing it. So let, let's try it out. And I think if you try it out, then you can see, you know, what results it produces. Believe it or not, it was tried out in the 1970s by Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, Republican president of the United States, who has a bad reputation on a number of fronts. Uh, but actually, you know, and there's still an argument going on about whether those experiments were successful or not. But I think, I think, it sh- I think the appetite tells you something about the power of the idea. Now, hopefully the lady at the back has got the microphone. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. My name's Liz. I come from Leicestershire. My question was about UBI as well. How are we going to sell it to the vested interests and the Daily Mail reading public who are are in the state that we're in currently where um, welfare is seen as a a privilege, not a right? Um, I can't see how, how we're ever going to be able to sell it to those sort of people. Okay. Hi, Neil. Hi. Um, perhaps um, I'm from Barnsley, actually, so from your constituency. I wonder if perhaps before we tackle the Everest of universal basic income, perhaps we could try something like a land value tax, uh, which might help to redistribute some of the income uh, in the UK. We've got an episode on that too, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, right. Um, so, so I think on persuading people, I think this is where the trials really come in, so that people can see the evidence of what happens, uh, rather than thinking about you know who's deserving or not deserving or, or, or whatever. And I think pointing out some of those things like um, uh, like child benefit, we already have a universal system. Um, we already have uh, uh, um, uh, universal. Uh, uh, safety nets so, so it's really a, oh, well they're, they're not very netty at the moment they've got some big holes in um, 
so I think it's not necessarily too far. And something that's universal, like the National Health Service, is in some ways an easier sell than saying some people are deserving and some people are not deserving, because everyone gets it equally. I also think that what I would add to that, Liz, is it's a, it definitely is a tough sell. But the reason it's a tough sell, as you rather implied, is the idea that people aren't going to work and they're just going to laze around, right? But actually, if you can show that when you've experimented with it, that is not what happens. And basically, I think it's a sort of gamble on human nature. I actually don't think most people would laze around. And in fact, the pilots that have been done suggest that isn't what happens. It provides people with a basic safety net. It's not that generous so that people can just laze around and have a great life, but it's enough for people to live on, and lots of people will then build on that. So, so I sort of think... I think it's worth a try. Uh, so we have a thing on the podcast. I think it's a wonderful uh, vision for the future. It's called the Jeffocracy, and it's, it's very much a utopian society with me installed as the benign leader. Um, Not that benign, actually. <laughs> so if I were to appoint you Climate Change Secretary, day one, what is the first thing? I'm giving, I'm giving you free reign. Day one, what's the first thing you do? Uh, so I would... Uh, in- I would reduce the carbon budgets so that, that we are in line with the carbon budgets required for one- limiting emissions to 1.5 degrees C, as it says in the Paris Agreement. And, and, and then as a mechanism towards getting there, I would have, the, you know, you produce it, you have to dispose of it, policy where if in the UK you produce fossil fuels, so from the North Sea or coal, then you have to sequester and remove and put into geological storage exactly the same amount of carbon that you put into the world so that the polluter not just pays, but actually solves the problem. Well, look, uh, Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Please give a huge, huge hand to Simon Lewis, everybody. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. 
Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And please welcome to Pitch Some Ideas, which could be reasons to be cheerful. We're joined by comedian Jen Brister. Oh God, that was um, that was quite full on, wasn't it? It was. He's got the answers, though. It's got the an- thank God someone's got the answers. That was getting progressively really bleak, wasn't it? Yeah, but at least we don't have to eat insects. I've eaten the, those witchetty grubs. Have, have you, you not? Have you ever tried those? No. That's all I have to say on the matter. I've eaten them. They are a delicacy. Are they well, like, like eating nuts? Are they in a little bag? What no, they're like eating grubs. Okay. They're exactly like that. I don't know why anyone would choose to do it in if they could eat. In what context were you eating them? Oh, I was in Australia and they were like, would you like to eat this witchetty grub? And I was like, yeah, mate. And I was like, no, this is absolutely revolting. But I, I, I you know, was up for it at the time. Yeah. Um, you brought along some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Yes. Do you want to give us your first one? My first one is I do um, do, do some work with a, a charity called Bloody Good Period. And, um, For people they, who don't know what that is, do you want to explain? They do fantastic work where they basically provide sanitary wear for women who can't afford it and for refugees. And I think that rather than having... Um, <laughs> rather than having a charity that has to provide this, and I think they're doing great work, is sanitary products should be freely available for women who can't afford them. End of. <laughs> if you can afford them, buy them, of course. But if you can't afford them, it's like um, condoms. You know, you can go to a sexual health clinic and get a whole bag full of condoms. That should be the same for women if they can't afford sanitary products. We live in a civilised society. We live in a time where there's period poverty, which is just insane. Um, that shouldn't that shouldn't exist. If you, if you need them, go out and get them. If men had periods, come on. You'd be able to get them behind the bar. <laughs> They'd be free. We wouldn't be... We have to... Pay, we, they're not only not free for us, we have to pay VAT, don't we, ladies? Because they're a luxury item. Does it feel like a luxury? I'm pretty sure it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like a luxury to me. Um, so, yes, that would be my first. So it would be like a food bank principle? Yeah, but I, I think it would be just... So sure that's the way to describe it. I don't think I would describe it that way. <laughs> no, but I, in as much as people who don't need to use yeah, food yeah. banks... Don't I think it should be attached to your... Maybe to your GP. You know, you just pop in and go, can I just get a couple of um, bags of whatever you use, tampons or sanitary, and then oh, away you go, and there's no, there's no shame in it, there's no embarrassment about it, they're just free, it's legal, boof, off you go. If you can afford them, bam, pay for them. This whole embarrassment, like, that we can't talk about the fact that women bleed... We bleed! Every month! Look around you! There's women bleeding all over the place. <laughs> Just don't talk about it. Talk about it, for heaven's sake. You know, we don't talk about periods, we don't talk about menopause. It's like Fight Club. No one knows what the hell's going on. Just, just talk about it. 
We buy the argument. Yeah, we'll have that. All right, what else you got? (laughs) Well, I've got two boys. I've got twins. They're three and a half. And I think it should be compulsory from about the age of eight, nine, that young boys are given uh, (laughs) emoting classes in school. Emoting. Emoting. So they learn to just get in touch with how they feel. There's no shame in crying. There's no shame in expressing your emotions. And you just go in... Because my kids, they are full-time emoters at the moment. They have like, you know, oh, I wanted a blue bowl. Oh, there's a little bit of milk on my T-shirt. And then you get to 10 and we're told, you know, you're not allowed to express yourself. And I think if men were given that... Because I think there's something about... Let's find ways of being able to emote generally and not associate emotions with being less than. Because emotions are attached to women. Women, we still don't live in an equal society. So anything that's attached to emotions is seen as weak because it's to do with women. No, let's just say... You want to have a cry fella off your trot? Off your tr- don't, don't wait for England to lose the next World Cup. <laughs> have a little cry now. But you're not, you're not, you're not um, advocating three-year-old levels of emoting. So if I spill no. milk on my shirt, <laughs> no. I don't need to have a full-on tantrum. Don't scream for a yellow bowl for two hours. <laughs> just, you know, just the normal amount of emotional response. Is it in schools? Is it in school, home? absolutely. In school. And, with, and also, just if men are allowed to express themselves, I guarantee you, you know, the, the, the domestic violence and... Uh, uh, you know, violence perpetrated against women by men, I bet there would be a big reduction. Yeah, yeah. Are they good at emoting your, your boys? Oh, 100%. I mean, they've got two mums. They're like, they're just, oh, mummy, I just feel, this is how I feel about the unicorns. You know, they're fine. <laughs> are, you, are you a good, when was the last time you cried, Dad? Oh, God. Are you not a good emoter? I think I cried a bit at Three Lions. <laughs> uh, I found it quite moving, all the Three Lions stuff. Uh, I think they should be... I remembered Euro 96 and, you know, I was younger. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 it... found, I found all of the England stuff quite moving. Yeah, but then don't you think that that is like you're projecting, you feel sad about other things, you go, well, I can't, I'm not allowed to cry about that, so... Uh, you know, the, general, three you know, the, general, the general election of 2015, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> you think I was, I was, I was projecting? Actually, Ed, I let, it, let it out, it out here. Actually, <laughs> actually start. to give credit to my son, my younger son, my wife said to him the day after because they were really upset about the World Cup. And uh, he, she said, well, you know, Daddy was really upset about the general election. He said, oh, come on. He said, the general election is much more important than the World Cup. So at least he's sort of reasonably well trained. Uh, he gets it, Ed. Yeah, there should be more it. crying in PMQs, often. More crying in yeah. PMQs? Yeah. I look at them sometimes. Sometimes I felt like crying in PMQs, actually. <laughs> uh, um, you think that would be good for crying in PMQs? Well, every now and again. Sure. Just, well, if someone could make Boris Johnson cry, see, maybe that's one thing. <laughs> But, you know, I think there is something interesting about this, and it is to do with Gareth Southgate, or Sir Gareth Southgate, as he will soon be known. Uh, um, I think, you see, what... I mean, he has definitely brought a different form of leadership. I think one of the reasons people have been so positive about him is he's brought a different form of leadership. Oh, 100%. Uh, Yes, you know, he was honest about missing the penalty and, you know, in Euro 96 and what that meant for him and how terrible it was and all of that. And when you heard his interviews with his players, it was all about him getting to know these players, what, they, what made them tick and all that. So I think he might be the sort of good leader for your campaign. I think if, if Gareth Southgate wants to champion this campaign, then I'm 100% Definitely. behind it. Definitely. He, and also, he was really good at like saying, you know, this is an England we should be proud of. We have a multicultural uh, and very diverse ethnic background in this team, and this is what we should be proud of of this country. And this is what we should be proud yeah. of. Not like, uh, you I know... Mean, he, he is going to be busy with the Brexit negotiations when he 
he gets back. <laughs> so he might not be able to lead your campaign. But but I mean, you know, if he could do that as a sideline. If maybe. he could try and fit it in, I'd be very yeah, grateful, yeah, Ed. No, maybe you could be, have a word. Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Maybe there are some reasons to be uh, potential things that could make us cheerful in the audience. Any ideas? Any ideas? This is your chance for a very short Dragon's Den, the ideas that could transform the country. Hi. Um, I think there should be twice as many ladies lose as men's lose everywhere. Oh, I think that's good. Especially at Latitude. Preach! What is the ladies lose situation like at Latitude? I haven't checked it out yet, but what is the, what is the situation? Lengthy. Lengthy. Worse than, much worse than the men's. Yeah. I mean, it is obviously true that you can see it's a world designed by men when you look at lose all in any place you go to, isn't it? I know. I, what is this? It's like 25 urinals, and then they have cubicles, and then we're expected to queue for two lose. It's, like, it's absurd. Maybe not here, there are more than two, but that is the general makeup of most toilets in most venues around the country. So, yeah, that's a brilliant point. Okay, I think that's a pretty good policy. There's a lady here as well. I think paternity leave should be made compulsory then actually men would be at home with the kids, know what it's about, and the whole glass ceiling professionally would go. And they should get six months, shouldn't they, as well, instead of two weeks. That, that should be... Oh, yeah. So yeah. there is something very interesting about this, which is in Scandinavia, and Jeff is a big sort of Swedophile, uh, in Scandinavia they have a policy, I think it's in Sweden, isn't it? Yeah. Called use it or lose it. Yeah. So men get three months paternity leave, but if they don't take it, it can't be transferred over to right. the woman. I mean, obviously, mothers get, I think, nine months or... They get, they get almost a year, don't or they? Or a year, yeah. yeah, something like a year. But men have three months. And it is... I mean, just being in Stockholm a few months ago, it was just so... You just see lots of men in the, on the streets with their babies, which you just don't see in the same way yeah. in this country. And also, then we'd stop saying, isn't it lovely when you see a dad out with his kids? Well, they are his kids, aren't they? So, mm, Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and there's a lady. Uh, there's a lady here. If you just pass the microphone along, we're doing this very well. Yep. What's your name? Uh, Claire. Claire. Hi. Claire from Cheshire. Hi. Claire from Cheshire. Um, I'd like to encourage politicians to have work experience before they decide to go into the role. <laughs> I think. I think. I think that's aimed at you, Jeff. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Didn't you do four weeks on a magazine or something? Yeah, fuck off. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, carry on, Claire. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving that I called you, Claire. I'm really pleased that I, uh, I chose you. Keep going. Go on, why? Yeah. Well, I'm concerned that we primarily have politicians that are very egotistical and focus on self and um, not really taking on a long-term view. And also we end up with a Minister of Health who doesn't understand health. We have a Minister of Education who doesn't understand education. And um, I'm concerned that we don't have peop- the right people taking on politics. I, mean, and I think we need to encourage more people to go into it. I think you make a really... I think you make a really interesting point about the fact that it almost seems to be a qualification of going into a role that you know nothing about it when you go into the role. Uh, and it, it, it's not like any other... And actually, the process of appointing people, I felt this as leader of the Labour Party, the process of appointing people is like no other, because you can't really interview people, you've just got to sort of pick people for the role. Uh, and the process of people getting the job, you need no prior expertise in the job. I mean, I think you are... I think you are right about that. And I'm very happy to design an assessment centre. Okay. <laughs> I think all politicians, including me, should go to an assessment centre. I think that's all we have time for. It is. Um, I think we should thank Jen. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. 
Now, you, you're in Edinburgh at the Fringe Festival. Yes. Your show is called Meaningless. Yes, uh, my show is called Meaningless at the Edinburgh Festival, and I'm also on tour from September with the same show title. Great. Thank Jem- you very much, guys. Jen Brister, thank you so much. I think we should thank our, our fantastic audience for being a fantastic audience. We all we love you. We'll give you a big round of applause for being a fantastic audience. <laughs> Uh, we'd like to thank Simon Lewis. Go and buy his book after this. And Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup in the research from Alex Spice-Price and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the iDads. And Seed wrote the music. And the artwork was by... Emily Power. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to Tanya at Latitude for inviting us to come today. We've really enjoyed it. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you very much, everybody.